Chapter Eight, Part Five of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orzy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bag of Sand, Part Five. I think I looked an extremely respectable, good, plain cook when I presented myself at the house in Eaton Terrace in response to the advertisement in the Daily Telegraph. As in addition to my prepossessing appearance, I also asked very low wages and declared myself ready to do anything except scour the front steps in the stone area, I was immediately engaged by Mrs. Jones, and was duly installed in the house the following day under the name of Mrs. Kerwin. But few events had occurred here since the discovery of the dual tragedy, now more than a year ago, and none that had thrown any light upon the mystery which surrounded it. The verdict at the inquest had been one of willful murder against a person known as Mrs. Thomas, the weight of evidence coupled with her disappearance, having been very heavy against her, and there was a warrant out for her arrest. Mrs. Dunstan had died intestate. To the astonishment of all those in the know, she had never signed the will which Messrs. Blankensop and Blankensop had drafted for her, and wherein she bequeathed twenty thousand pounds and the lease of her house in Eaton Terrace to her beloved niece, Violet Frostwick, a thousand pounds to Miss Cruikshank, and other smaller legacies to friends or servants. In default of a will, Mr. Nicholas Jones, only brother of the deceased, became possessed of all her wealth. He was a very rich man himself, and many people thought that he ought to give Miss Cruikshank the thousand pounds which the girl had thus lost through no fault of her own. What his ultimate intentions were with regard to this no one could know. For the present he contented himself with moving to Eaton Terrace with his family, and as his wife was a great invalid, he asked Miss Cruikshank to continue to make her home in the house and to help in its management. Neither the diamonds nor the money stolen from Mrs. Dunstan's safe were ever traced. It seems that Mrs. Dunstan, a day or two before her death, had sold a freehold cottage which she owned near Teddington. The money, as is customary, had been handed over to her in gold, in Mr. Blankensop's office, and she had been foolish enough not to bank it immediately. This money and the diamonds had been the chief spoils of her assailant, and all the while no trace of Mrs. Thomas, in spite of the most strenuous efforts on the part of the police to find her. Strangely enough, when I had been in Eaton Terrace about three days, and was already getting very tired of early rising and hard work, the charwoman there fell ill one day, and did not come to her work as usual. I, of course, grumbled like six, for I had to be on my hands and knees the next morning, scrubbing stone steps, and my thoughts of Lady Molly for the moment were not quite as loyal as they usually were. Suddenly I heard a shuffling footstep close behind me. I turned and saw a rough-looking, ill-dressed woman standing at the bottom of the steps. "'What do you want?' I asked sourly, for I was in a very bad humour. "'I saw you scrubbing them steps, miss,' she said in a very raucous voice. "'My husband's out of work, and the children ain't had no breakfast this morning. I do them steps, miss, if you give me a trifle.' The woman certainly did not look very prepossessing, with her shabby, broad-brimmed hat hiding the upper part of her face, and her skirt, torn and muddy, pinned up untidily round her stooping figure. However, I did not think that I could be doing anything very wrong by letting her do this one bit of rough work, which I hated, so I agreed to give her sixpence, and left her there with kneeling mat and scrubbing brush, and went in, leaving, however, the front door open. In the hall I met Miss Cruikshank, who, as usual, was down before everybody else. "'What is it, Kerwin?' she asked, for through the open door she had caught sight of the woman kneeling on the step. "'A woman, miss,' I replied somewhat curtly. 
She offered to do the steps. I thought Mrs. Jones wouldn't mind, as Mrs. Callahan hasn't turned up. Miss Cruikshank hesitated an instant, and then walked up to the front door. At the same moment the woman looked up, rose from her knees, and boldly went up to accost Miss Cruikshank. "'You'll remember me, miss,' she said in her raucous voice. "'I used to work for Mrs. Dunstan once. My name is Mrs. Thomas.' No wonder Miss Cruikshank uttered a quickly smothered cry of horror. Thinking that she would faint, I ran to her assistance, but she waved me aside and then said quite quietly, "'This poor woman's mind is deranged. She is no more Mrs. Thomas than I am. Perhaps we had better send for the police.' "'Yes, miss, perhaps you'd better,' said the woman with a sigh. "'My secret has been weighing heavy on me of late.' "'But, my good woman,' said Miss Cruikshank very kindly, for I suppose that she thought, as I did, that this was one of those singular cases of madness which sometimes cause innocent people to accuse themselves of undiscovered crimes. "'You are not Mrs. Thomas at all. I knew Mrs. Thomas well, of course, and—' "'Of course you knew me, miss,' replied the woman. "'The last conversation you and I had together was in the kitchen that morning, when Mrs. Dunstan was killed. I remember your saying to me—' "'Fetch the police, Kerwin!' said Miss Cruikshank peremptorily, whereupon the woman broke into a harsh, loud laugh of defiance. To tell you the truth, I was not a little puzzled. That this scene had been foreseen by my dear lady, and that she had sent me to this house on purpose, that I should witness it, I was absolutely convinced. But here was my dilemma. Ought I to warn the police, at once, or not? On the whole, I decided that my best plan would undoubtedly be to communicate with Lady Molly first of all and to await her instructions. So I ran upstairs, scribbled a hasty note to my dear lady, and in response to Miss Cruikshank's orders, flew out of the house through the area gate, noticing, as I did so, that Miss Cruikshank was still parleying with the woman on the doorstep. I sent the note off to Maida Vale by taxicab. Then I went back to Eaton Terrace. Miss Cruikshank met me at the front door, and told me that she had tried to detain the woman, pending my return, but that she felt very sorry for the unfortunate creature, who obviously was laboring under a delusion, and she had allowed her to go away. About an hour later I received a curt note from Lady Molly, ordering me to do nothing whatever without her special authorization. In the course of the day Miss Cruikshank told me that she had been to the police station, and had consulted with the inspector, who said that there would be no harm in engaging the pseudo-Mrs. Thomas to work at Eaton Terrace, especially as thus she would remain under observation. Then followed a curious era in Mr. Nicholas Jones's otherwise well-ordered household. We three servants, instead of being called at six as heretofore, were allowed to sleep on until seven. When we came down we were not scolded. On the contrary, we found our work already done. The charwoman, whoever she was, must have been a very hard-working woman. It was marvellous what she accomplished single-handed before seven a.m., by which time she had invariably gone. The two maids, of course, were content to let this pleasant state of things go on, but I was devoured with curiosity. One morning I crept quietly downstairs and went into the kitchen soon after six. I found the pseudo-Mrs. Thomas sitting at a very copious breakfast. I noticed that she had on altogether different, though equally shabby and dirty, clothes from those she had worn when she first appeared on the doorstep of 180 Eaton Terrace. Near her plate were three or four golden sovereigns, over which she had thrown her grimy hand. Miss Cruikshank, the while, was on her hands and knees scrubbing the floor. At sight of me she jumped up, 
and with obvious confusion muttered something about hating to be idle, etc. That day Miss Cruikshank told me that I did not suit Mrs. Jones, who wished me to leave at the end of my month. In the afternoon I received a little note from my dear lady, telling me to be downstairs by six o'clock the following morning. I did as I was ordered, of course, and when I came into the kitchen punctually at six a.m., I found the charwoman sitting at the table with a pile of gold in front of her, which she was counting over with a very grubby finger. She had her back to me, and was saying as I entered, "'I think if you was to give me another fifty quid, I'd leave you the rest now. You'd still have the diamonds and the rest of the money.' She spoke to Miss Cruikshank, who was facing me, and who, on seeing me appear, turned as white as a ghost. But she quickly recovered herself, and standing between me and the woman, she said vehemently, "'What do you mean by prying on me like this? Go and pack your boxes and leave the house this instant.' But before I could reply, the woman interposed. "'Don't fret yourself, miss,' she said, placing her grimy hand on Miss Cruikshank's shoulder. "'There's the bag of sand in that there corner. We'll knock her down as we did Mrs. Dunstan, eh?' "'Hold your tongue, you lying fool,' said the girl, who now looked like a maddened fury. "'Give me that other fifty quid, and I'll hold my tongue,' retorted the woman boldly. "'This creature is mad,' said Miss Cruikshank, who had made a vigorous and successful effort to recover herself. "'She is under the delusion that not only is she Mrs. Thomas, but that she murdered Mrs. Dunstan.' "'No, no,' interrupted the woman. "'I only came back that morning because I recollected that you had left the bag of sand upstairs after you so cleverly did away with Mrs. Dunstan, robbed her of all her money and jewels, and even was sharp enough to imitate her voice when Mrs. Kennett, the cook, terrified you by speaking to Mrs. Dunstan through the door. "'It is false. You are not Mrs. Thomas. The two maids who are here now, and who were in this house at that time, can swear that you are a liar.' "'Let us change clothes now, Miss Cruikshank,' said a voice, which sounded almost weirdly in my ear in spite of its familiarity, for I could not locate whence it came. "'And see if in a charwoman's dress those two maids would not recognize you.' "'Mary,' continued the same familiar voice, "'Help me out of these filthy clothes. Perhaps Miss Cruikshank would like to resume her own part of Mrs. Thomas, the charwoman.' "'Liars and impostors both!' shouted the girl, who was rapidly losing all presence of mind. "'I'll send for the police!' "'Quite unnecessary,' rejoined Lady Molly coolly. "'Detective Inspector Danvers is just outside that door.' The girl made a dash for the other door, but I was too quick for her and held her back, even whilst Lady Molly gave a short, sharp call which brought Danvers on the scene. I must say that Miss Cruikshank made a bold fight, but Danvers had two of our fellows with him, and arrested her on the warrant for the apprehension of the person known as Mrs. Thomas. The clothes of the charwoman who had so mysteriously disappeared had been found by Lady Molly at the back of the coal cellar, and she was still dressed in them at the present moment. No wonder I had not recognized my own dainty lady in the grimy woman who had so successfully played the part of a blackmailer on the murderess of Mrs. Dunstan. She explained to me subsequently that the first inkling that she had had of the horrible truth, namely that it was Miss Cruikshank who had deliberately planned to murder Mrs. Dunstan by impersonating a charwoman for a while, and thus throwing dust in the eyes of the police, was when she heard of the callous words which the old lady was supposed to have uttered when she was told of Miss Violet's flight from the house in the middle of the night. She may have been angry at the girl's escapade, explained Lady Molly to me, but she would not have allowed her to starve. Such cruelty was all out of proportions to the offence. 
Then I looked about me for a stronger motive for the old woman's wrath, and remembering what she said on New Year's Eve, when Violet fled crying from the room, I came to the conclusion that her anger was not directed against her niece, but against the other girl, and against the man who had transferred his affections from Violet Frostwick to Miss Cruikshank, and had not only irritated Mrs. Dunstan by this clandestine, double-faced love-making, but had broken the heart of his trusting fiancée. No doubt Miss Cruikshank did not know that the will, whereby she was to inherit a thousand pounds, was not signed, and no doubt she and young Athol planned out that cruel murder between them. The charwoman was also a bag of sand, which was literally thrown into the eyes of the police. But, I objected, I can't understand how a cold-blooded creature like that Miss Cruikshank could have allowed herself to be terrorized and blackmailed. She knew that you could not be Mrs. Thomas, since Mrs. Thomas never existed. Yes, but one must reckon a little sometimes with that negligible quantity known as conscience. My appearance as Mrs. Thomas vaguely frightened Miss Cruikshank. She wondered who I was and what I knew. When, three days later, I found the shabby clothes in the coal cellar and appeared dressed in them, she lost her head. She gave me money. From that moment she was done for. Confession was only a matter of time. And Miss Cruikshank did make full confession. She was recommended to mercy on account of her sex, but she was plucky enough not to implicate David Athol in the recital of her crime. He has since emigrated to Western Canada. End of the Bag of Sand End of Chapter 8